0: Calling Dick Tracy. Come in, Dick Tracy. A podcast is in progress. Hey folks, and welcome to yet another episode of the Dick Tracy Minute podcast, recapping 1990s colorful extravaganza of a film Dick Tracy at the rate of one minute of screen time per one episode. My name's Parker.
1: My name's Rob. Did you know that Tracy York was replaced with Tracy Sargent on The sitcom <laughs> which... of Oh, yeah, it's Durwood, right? That's That's where I'm at with these jokes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, he's there buying apples every single week. I've never seen the man make a pie. So, oh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) here we are. uh, Minute six this week of the Dick Tracy Minute podcast. We're picking up in midline from last week. Um,
1: How are you doing this week, Rob? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm wearing my new uh, Dick Tracy t-shirt that I uh, recently purchased on Red Bubble. Uh, it's kind of the, the international waters of uh, t-shirt websites. You can kind of just find designs there and, and decide whether you want to have them on a t-shirt or a mug or a clock or all kinds of things. And I, I did a sort of a search for Dick Tracy and I found all these character posters from the movie ah. and I put one of them on a t-shirt and I'm, I'm I'm very pleased with it. So yeah, that's where I'm at. That's terrific.
0: It's always nice when some uh, merch actually slips through the cracks of the, uh, the red bubble system instead of getting deleted immediately
1: oh it's just pure cancel culture parker is all it is it's it it just makes me sick i have to be sad you know so sooner or later we'll uh we'll have our moment in the sun on red bubble we'll be back in business before long (laughs) Anyway, I'm I'm just pleased to be bringing the big Tracy energy as always. So,
0: as always, and as always, we pick up right where we left off down to the second uh last time. Uh Tess and Tracy are still out pounding the pavement walking down this sidewalk together. We've got the ominous uh, first few hours of sooner or later playing. And uh, Tess is really hyping them up. Tess is, you know, going in for the chief of police stuff. They believe in you, Tracy, about uh, the people of this town. How do you think Chief Brandon feels about this huge campaign for, for Tracy to replace him as the chief?
1: Yeah, I mean, Chief Brandon seems pretty old. He's... You know, he's like a lot of those kind of police chiefs in these movies. He's been in the he's been in the game a long time. He kind of seems like he's ready to be put out to pasture. He's ready for his, you know, state retirement, his pension. You know, he he doesn't seem particularly kind of concerned with Big Boy or anything like that. He kind of looks like a man who he's a nine to fiver, you know, whereas Tracy mm. will stay in the office until the job is done. So... You know, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, like it's kind of interesting that uh, like Chief Brandon never really gets painted as even a red herring for like trying to take t- Tracy down. That's definitely, I think, a direction it could. I like, I'm sure he's a straight arrow on the comics, but at least as a red herring, you would think maybe he'd be behind comes some of the stuff because it's like, oh, Tracy's the big man coming from his job, or and he's getting too big for too big for his hat.
1: I actually did some research on Chief Brandon last week when we first saw Chief Brandon. Didn't come up in the episode, but to my knowledge, and forgive me if I don't get this entirely right, Chief. Brandon eventually retired because he he retired out of shame in the comics because he was uh because he he failed to solve some crime or something something like that anyway he 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 ended up retiring and he uh he moved out to the countryside but then he eventually returned back to the city. The, the city in Dick Tracy, by the way, is just called The City. Mm. He returns to the city and he opens up a landscaping um, shop called <laughs> Lawn Order. <laughs> so That's pretty good. That's pretty
0: fun. Yeah. Not, uh, not four seasons or anything like that. No,
1: no, no, no. It's only good for one season. <laughs> No, it's it's only good for four colors, hey.
0: Ah, nice. So yeah, so this is, again, like we've got Tess Trueheart here, the great Glenn Headley. You, do you know how, do you know why we were confused about the Headley or Hetty
1: thing, I think? Because of Lena Hetty on Game of Thrones, or Lena? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I'm not
0: even a Game of Thrones uh, watcher, but uh, I was rewatching Dread last week, and she's in that, and she, she's awesome in that, and I realized like, oh yeah, that's that's why that name's in my head. Anyway, this minute is mostly singing, but it does start out with one of my favorite, maybe my favorite line in the whole film, which is, Tess, there's about as much chance of me getting behind a desk as there is of me getting a new girlfriend.
1: I do really like that line, but it always felt a little bit kind of like Tracy just trying to remind Tess that, look, I know it probably seems like I just care about my job and nothing else, but I'm just going to slip this little reminder in here just to remind you that we're okay. You know that kind of way?
0: Yeah, but, I mean, uh, that's that's what I like about it. It's like this he's disagreeing with her, but he just sneaks in this, like, disarmingly reassuring piece of, you know, romance in there. Really like
1: it. I, I, I want to point out a subtle goof that it, it, it. I'm sure they were aware of this, and maybe you noticed it as well. Hmm. So, Tracy, so they cut mid-line. I'm actually yes. going to pull up the clip here. Apologies, listeners, I know this is the, always the most interesting part of the show. So, Tess says, okay, here we go. Big boys on the streets. They want to stick me behind a desk. They believe in you, Tracy. They think if you're a chief of police. And then they cut to a wide shot. And it's clear that. Mm. So at the start of the scene, Tracy and Tess are turning around a corner. And then mid-sentence, they cut to a wide shot. Mm -hmm. And they're halfway up the street. Oh, interesting. I've never noticed this before in the 25 odd years I've been watching this movie. These are the things you notice when you disseminate minute by minute of a movie. And how. Uh, it's absolutely. It's, it's not necessarily an actual goof. I just thought it was interesting that they, they made that decision in the edit, that mm-hmm. they cut to this big wide shot, and then we see, obviously, this breathtakingly beautiful matte painting. Very obviously a matte painting, but that's fine. <laughs> that's
0: what we're here for.
1: Do you want to talk about some of the, the, the shops that we see? We head
0: up, we, we're looking at the matte painting now, and we've got a few more signs. The one that jumps out to me is Barrel, Barrel of form. Fun. Barrel open.
1: <laughs> I always. What uh, kind of business is barrel I, I, open? I'm assuming it's a pub. Like it it has that kind of pub look about it. It's a neon kind of what's interesting is you know traditionally watching this movie when they turn around the corner and they're coming up that street I always assumed that they were on the street where the diner is mm-hmm, same. and I feel like in terms of where the set is laid out and stuff like that I feel like they actually probably were on that street it's just that the way they cut it and they show this big map painting we see that they're not yeah I'm, I'm gonna assume that barrel O fun is some kind of pub it looks like it may even be an Irish pub there's ah. a little bit of green in there a nice little awning uh, and it looks like if you look very very carefully yeah. the red wind though i think he can just about make out a guy who looks like he's having a nice time in there so i i think i'm gonna stop by the barrel of fun do you
0: think it's one of the irish cops from the
1: forest i oh, think
0: this is where they all go to the barrel of fun
1: oh potato yeah that, that's where my my <laughs> ancestors went um <laughs>
0: uh, and you've got the animated barrels cascading down pretty cool
1: yeah. Uh I just I also want to point out that we, we talk a lot of bit in this movie about how Tracy isn't willing to settle down. You know, would he ever take a wife? We we we'll get to that in future minutes. There there is actually a dress shop. Oh, interesting. To the right of the characters. It's it's a little bit more shrouded in darkness than the barrel of Fun on the left side of the frame. Totally. But I wonder was that kind of like a subtle kind of hmm, you know,
0: do I hear wedding bells? Bridal gowns on the window, yeah. It also looks like there's There's just like an armchair and a lamp in one window. I guess one of these like home furniture kind of stores but it's it's interesting. It's It almost looks like a peek into somebody's apartment.
1: Apologies to jump back to the barrel of fun but <laughs> I've just noticed that there's actually a neon barrel jumping up and down and it looks like a barrel of beer so I'm going to say it's definitely a pub. Big time. This is
0: post-prohibition uh, night, late 1930s and the barrels are back on the menu.
1: Which is interesting because I've always sort of viewed Dick Tracy specifically in this movie as kind of an Elliot Ness type character mm-hmm. and the fact that prohibition is gone kind of makes that comparison a little bit moot and i i do know that at one point they were thinking of setting this in the 20s i might be wrong Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah i i you know i just thought that was interesting and we see an animated train go by which kind of an l train it helps sell the illusion that this map painting is actually the environment, which um, definitely worked for me as a kid watching the movie on VHS recorded off TV3 time, in yeah. And
0: uh, the L train also kind of just feels like um, maybe the best piece of evidence that this is Chicago, uh, or at least a nice homage to it uh, for our nameless city. So as the L train goes by, we continue floating through the air across the city on the wings of uh, the opening bars of Sooner or Later, And we can already notice in the big cityscape, there's this one location that's kind of floodlit and more active looking than the rest of the imagery. And that's one of the most exciting uh, locations in the film where a lot of the action is going to take place. And that's the Club Ritz. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a nice kind of, like, purple light very vividly on the road leading to the Club Ritz. Mm. Um, Almost like, like, it's like the light spilling out of the club, but the the roads themselves, like most roads in movies, uh, are soaking wet in pretty much every scene. (laughs) Uh, We've seen a lot of outdoors during this day in the film so far, it never appeared to be raining, uh, but the roads are still soaked and they reflect really well. This this sort of sultry purple light that's inviting us towards the clubs. It's, it's really nice.
1: Well, you see, the reason for that, Parker, is back then they had to make grease deliveries every day. Ah, uh, course. Inevitably, some some of the grease
0: would spill out on the <laughs> on the streets. Just grease going straight from the butcher to the uh,
1: power plant. <laughs> I, I I will know two more signs that I noticed in that beautiful pan shot on the map in the map painting that's here a1 tires make your car happy make your car happy with a1 tires that's Pretty timeless. Um, <laughs> I will mention that uh, I, I I think I mentioned before the Shadow Radio Show. You know that they had a lot of old timey mm-hmm. ads in that for uh, Blue Coal Anthracite. <laughs> and that was the other one. Uh, anyway, one of the other ones they had was Goodrich Tires, <laughs> and they they talk about Goodrich Tires and how much better they were than all the other types of tires. So A one tires make your car happy. Reminds me of those old ads in the the Shadow Radio Show. <laughs> There's also a ad for something called El Bueno. Hmm. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what they're selling there. I'm assuming it's either a vacation package or some kind of uh, Mexican imported beer. So El Bueno.
0: sounds good. It sure does. So from there, we now, as it zooms in on uh, the Club Ritz, a few cars pull away, and we're starting to hear a woman's voice from inside sing the opening lyrics to the song. Sooner or later, it's a lo-fi version right here. It's just her and the piano, I think. Later, you're gonna And now finally we cut to Inside the Club Ritz and uh, it's another really memorably kind of disarming shot because there's always a split second for me where it's like you don't even uh, realize you're looking at a human right Mm -hmm. away. The singer has her back to the camera she's got her arms wrapped around herself doing kind of the, the make out fake out pose and she's wearing this skin tight silk dress and the whole thing adds up to She almost looks more like, like a vase of flowers than a human. So you're just looking at this strange kind of slightly moving black vase with this puff of curly blonde hair at the top. And then finally she turns around and we've got Madonna.
1: We've got Madonna. And you know what? In the background of the shot, you can see Mandy Patinkin and he's playing the piano and you can see his arms moving a little bit. So it makes me think that he may have actually been playing. The- I, I, I don't know. I'll We'll see later on in the movie whether he was actually playing or not. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But he just has this look on his face like he's just gazing at her and he's just like almost gazing longingly, confusedly, just doesn't even know what's going on in his head. And I think Mandy Patinkin in this scene is every hot-blooded man and boy (laughs) watching the movie. Like I was nine watching this movie, and I was going, "Yes, I I like this. (laughs) (laughs) I apparently I like girls." Like you know, it's and it's so funny because like. You know, a lot of modern comic book movies are accused of being a little bit sexless because on the one hand, they're trying to veer away from kind of a lot of the traditional exploitation of, of women in these movies, which is completely fair enough. And then on the other hand, they're exploiting women in other ways. and You know, but like when you go back to these movies, especially like Dick Tracy, Batman Returns, to a certain extent, Batman Forever, like they, they have much more of a sexuality about them. And that's so immediately evident in this first scene with madonna it's like this movie is gonna be sexy
0: big time and it's in stark contrast to like we've just seen tess in her nice opera clothes with her you know like her big coat and her big hat and looking like a grown lady from that era and like yeah the 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 contrast from tess panning over to madonna in this form-fitting black silk is uh is pretty jarring and yeah like uh, to your point about Mandy Patinkin he's not look he doesn't look at the uh the keyboard at any point here he's he's playing he could play it in his sleep and he's just gazing longingly at Breathless the whole
1: time the the, the, the great Mandy Patinkin I should say by the way I I didn't oh, give him any of, one of the all-time greats I give him many yeah. fanfare there like he's such a great actor and he's still going strong my girlfriend is literally watching Homeland as we speak right now mm. and she's a huge Criminal Minds fan as well like every time he pops up in something, I think eighty-eight keys and eighty-eight keys. You know he's great. He's the for, for play
0: Yeah, and this is a couple of years after Princess Bride as well. I think Princess Bride's nineteen eighty-eight. Yes, and, of uh, course, Princess like, Bride. Yeah, just one of the all-time greatest fantasy performances ever. In that, and, and yeah, it's all his ro- his role in this film's weirdly small, coming after Princess Bride. But I don't know. It's it's so great.
1: It, it is, but and like I feel like I'm the only person kind of around our age who always thinks of Mandy Patinkin in this film and not Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. And I do love Princess Bride, but I discovered it kind of 3 or 4 years after Dick Tracy, so Ditto. it's it, it doesn't kind of have that sort of formative place in my heart that mm-hmm. that this movie has. Um and I think he like it for such a small part he is still memorable in the film. Yeah, big time. You yeah, I'm, I'm not like, giving
0: him a fair shake. He's he's got a pretty important role as it goes on for sure.
1: But yeah, and then will we move on to the other elephant in the room? <laughs>
0: Uh, I suppose so, yes. So it cuts from uh, Madonna. Who does it cut from?
1: Or who does it cut to? It cuts to the great Paul Servino, Lips Manless, literally Lips Manless. And we know why he's called that straight away. And he's just chowing down on oysters. Oyster after oyster. And what I love about this, and I've never noticed it before, he has a staff member on hand to literally remove the plates Mm -hmm. from, from in front of him and replace them with fresh plates of oysters. And all of that garnish and all the, everything else on the plate is completely going to waste. But it's it's only the oysters that Lips manus cares about. And, you know, as a kid, I'd always think, you know, why is he doing that? What's the big deal? But as a gluttonous 30-year-old man, I'm thinking, <laughs> that's the f***ing dream, man. Imagine having someone just on hand just to hand you more food. You know, you've had a couple of glasses of wine. You know, you want to chow down. And here's this guy just handing you all the food you want. And he's taking away all the excess shrapnel that you don't want. <laughs> He's going to throw it out in the garbage and you can just, you know, watch Madonna singing and just eat your oysters. That's the dream. Man.
0: It's the classic, just mobster gluttony here. And here, here's the thing, Paul Sorvino, this, is, this film's the same year as Goodfellas. We've got the great Paul Sorvino. He's like the number one, I would say, like go-to mobster actor ever. I can't think yeah. of anyone who's played more mobsters in more things. Because um, even just a few years after this, there's The Firm as well, where he's just like, he's only in sort of the last act. And it's like, we need a go-to big mob boss here. But he looks totally different in this film because yeah. Lip's manless here. He's, he's wearing like a um, tuxedo. Is, does he have his tuxedo jacket off?
1: He is wearing his tuxedo jacket in this scene.
0: Yeah. He's got his jacket on and and like a strained fit to burst cummerbund the whole bottom half of Paul Sorvino's face in this scene is where you get your Dick Tracy bad guy makeup. It's regular Sorvino yeah. from the eyes up. But the bottom half, he's got this big, wide, distended mouth and Richard Nixon-like cheeks. It's kind of like the Jack Nicholson Joker makeup, but in reverse to make this big, yeah. grotesque, wide-lipped frown. And he's, he's yeah, just slurping these oysters on the half. Do you think he was eating real oysters in this scene? Do you think,
1: Paul Sorvino, do you think that was in his rider? Now there's a question. Um, I did notice the plates are, the the food on the plates is that kind of, Perfectly decorated, almost, almost like the food you see in ads for food. You know the way everyone complains that the burgers from Burger King and McDonald's look so much better in the ads than they <laughs> actually do in real life. The the plates of food that he has here look so meticulously perfect that I I feel like maybe they weren't real food, but um, You're just fiberglass oysters. <laughs> I feel I feel like there's like a half a there's a half a frame where you kind of see something dribbling out of his mouth. I might be terribly wrong here. God, I'm actually looking at it here again. I
0: wonder how many takes they did of this. Do you think this was a method situation where it's like he's eating those oysters in every take? Maybe we had a little makeup magic going on where they had some sort of vacuum system built into his lips, manless cheeks, to suck the fake oysters <laughs> yeah. off the shell, so we wouldn't have to actually eat them. Maybe I'm letting my mind run away with me here, but I can't think of another explanation. There's no spit bucket. What a waste of oysters that would be.
1: Yeah. I, I, I just, I I, th- I do think it's interesting with the oysters that like he has, he literally has employed someone to just keep feeding him so that he can constantly be like, he's so constantly in control. And l- like, it, it it almost informs a little bit of what we're going to learn later on about him and Breathless is that. She's his property. Like, you know, mm. he, he probably thinks he loves her. He thinks that she's, you know, his, his girlfriend, his maul, his wife, whatever she is. But he definitely just owns her. And you, you kind of get that immediately. Like, he's not even invested in her performance. He just likes that she's there and she's doing what she's being told to do you know that kind of way Mm -hmm. um she's about to trade up she's about to trade up um one other thing i i just written down here horseshoe diamond ring never noticed that before he's got a really nice
0: oh interesting Missed that
1: distinctive horseshoe diamond ring on his finger he also has a really classy really timeless rectangular watch just i don't know (laughs) i like watches Um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Goodfellas there because I I did a little bit of Paul Servino research as well and I've written down Goodfellas, Rocketeer, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, of course, Rocketeer. I feel like he didn't really have... He didn't really have, like, any enormous roles before this movie. The same way, you know, your Pacinos and, like, literally everybody else in the movie was, like, this huge... Like, maybe I'm really, really wrong on this, but nothing stood out to me as being, oh, yeah, well, that's the movie that Paul Servino is really famous for. Hmm. Like, I feel like Goodfellas came out as you said it came out this year and then he's in a bunch of stuff after that
0: as did the rocketeer so yeah 1990 would have been sorvino's like big mobster breakout year because yeah he's uh lips manless and Liss, eddie valentine and the rocketeer um and big poly cicero all in 1990 that's a big
1: year and all three are played totally different that's wild yeah yeah um, I always remember him as the dad in a show called That's Life, about an Italian-American <laughs> woman who decides to go back to college in her late 20s, early 30s. I can't remember. Hey, that's life. I, 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 hey, that's life. <laughs> um, but yeah. So I think the important thing here, though, like the in
0: terms of our introduction to Madonna, is, is looking at where is Madonna in her career here. And, and we will go more into this uh, as the minutes yeah. go on. Madonna is, like, sensationally famous here. This is, 1990 is maybe, I don't know if peak Madonna, because the the Madonna peak lasted, just, it went on and on. Um, the main thing is that this is an early film for her. Mm. She starred in three films before this. She had a few like supporting bit parts before she was really big, like stuff where she was credited like, with her last name and stuff. But at this point, she's done Desperately Seeking Susan, a film I only know just based on the title and the Simpsons parody of Desperately Seeking Xena. She starred in Who's That Girl, which I think I don't know how well remembered Who's That Girl is as a film. The single is immortal. The the really interesting one to me is that uh, right before Dick Tracy, like a year before, she starred in Bloodhounds of Broadway, which is another old-timey 1920s period piece comedy thing, kind of like this. And it's also got this incredible o- ensemble cast with Matt Dillon, Jennifer Grey, uh, Rucker Hauer, um, and Randy Quaid <laughs> is in that one Randy Quaid, as well. Yeah, I'd like to see how, how he fared in the night. I mean, the, the great Randy Quaid, who unfortunately has kind of lost his mind now, so to speak, but 1989 Randy Quaid is Cousin Ed. And Christmas Vacation, one of the funniest performances of all time. Uh, anyway, save that for the Bloodhounds of Broadway minute. But uh, <laughs> the the thing is, though, Bloodhounds of Broadway. Earn Madonna a Golden Raspberry Award nomination for Worst Supporting Actress. Gotta love those goddamn Razzies and their, their endless henpecking. Uh, that's my personal thing. I, I can't stand the Razzies. I think they've... they've that's they're fair. They're the ultimate Stadler and Waldorf peanut gallery garbage. Any performance one way or the other gets... I think like there's lots of performances that get nominated for Oscars and Razzies at the same time. At, at any rate, Madonna uh did not win the Razzie that year. She lost it lost to Brooke Shields for a film called Speed Zone. I feel like Madonna has won Razzie's since for Swept Away yeah. and things like that. I
1: think that there was a there there was a stretch of about 4 movies where um her performances were panned, so it's possible within that time that she uh Shadows and Fog lead their own body of evidence and dangerous game, I think. She
0: panned for it. Her,
1: her her performance was was panned in all four of those, mm-hmm. so I think um she may have either been nominated or won a Razzie in that time. But neither here nor there, not important.
0: Yeah. And she uh she's terrific in this. I'm not sure if this was her first
1: maybe acclaimed role, but uh one comparison I would make is that um as you said, she had appeared in a couple of movies prior to this. This was like really a vehicle for Madonna. Like she used uh, a lot of the songs on the tour that she had at the time, mm. which I don't have in front of me. Um, and like literally she'd have a guy playing Dick Tracy, like come up on stage and stuff like that. Oh, like, cool. Um, yeah. Like, cause there's the I'm breathless. It was the, uh, blonde, it was the blonde Ambition World Tour. Sorry. Ah, she'd cool, sing cool. a lot of the songs. Obviously, sooner or later was nominated for an Academy Award. Won but Academy what Award the, Award. <laughs> yes, you're right. The, the correlation I would make is that she's very much at the same place in her career as maybe Lady Gaga was when she made Stars Born.
0: Ah, interesting, yeah.
1: In that, like, the peak of her sort of pop music career was probably behind her. But, like, the everything else in her career period was kind of just about to kick off. And, like, I think that's where we're at with Lady Gaga now, where, she, like, you know, she's she's made all this incredible music and she's probably... She's probably come past the peak of that, but she's now moving into the movie side of things. And, you know, that's... It, it's thus far has gone really well for her so
0: yeah like at this point so album wise madonna had done so, her self-titled debut madonna then like a virgin uh then true blue and then right before dick tracy like a prayer and like so it's like when i think of like yeah the late 80s like a prayer madonna that's like absolute yeah. pop superstar like she's officially like changed music forever at that point and yeah like you're saying like now she's like really getting into uh some really good movie roles so yeah that's pretty cool
1: I remember like as a child like watching videos of Madonna and I remember like some of my earliest memories are seeing her singing Don't Cry For Me Argentina for the Evita soundtrack definitely and it was like it was a real earworm it would be in your head for days and it was probably one of the first instances of like having a a song stuck on my head and not actually liking having it stuck (laughs) on my head but then she had all these other songs like I I definitely remember watching the video for Papa Don't Preach and Mm -hmm. oh god I'm trying to think but like I definitely knew back then oh my god like this is the most famous woman of the world the most beautiful woman of the world like she was the queen of pop in the same way that like michael jackson's Mm -hmm. the king of pop at at that point in time
0: you know it's funny actually i think my first exposure to madonna ever was at the beginning of my betamax tape of the uh the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtles movie oh wow there's about like 10 seconds of the music video uh the one with christopher walken in it and i'm trying to
1: what's the I'm just thinking of, like, a potential scene of, like, Raphael and Madonna just meeting in a in a bar and going back and making love.
0: <laughs> I lost a sigh! But I can get it back! I can get it back! You call it a like crumpet? I left it at this bronze apartment! Jesus. Raphael! Um... <laughs> But yeah, there was this really sultry, like, great movie. Uh, like it's like Christopher Walken standing eerily at the end of a hallway. It's the music video for "Bad Girl," and it was just these ten weird, nightmarish uh, seconds looking into this dark, scary adult world. And then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would uh, would start up, and that's all I really knew okay. of Madonna at the time and uh, before Dick Tracy. Interesting. So yeah, she gets to this minute ends uh, just partway through the song.
1: Yeah, she says. I'm going to love you when you are alone. Are you sure? Yeah.
0: Isn't it? I'm going to love you and you all alone. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm going to love you and you all alone. Think. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to love you and you all alone.
1: Oh, Oh, God. That's terrible. (laughs) If only there was
0: some way for us to look up
1: the lyrics. If only there was some way. Maybe if we consult our wrist radios, we can you know, call headquarters and see what they have to say. No, I'm watching the scene right now, apologies listeners This is going to be great fun to edit Always is I'm gonna
0: love you when you're all alone
1: Oh, you, you are absolutely right I'm gonna love you and you all alone What did you think it was? Well, I thought it was I'm gonna love you when you are alone Ah But <laughs> it appears I'm wrong I've been watching this movie for 25 years And I'm wrong So there you
0: go You'll Learn something new every minute but uh, yeah, so this
1: 23 is... 23 years. Sorry.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> this is the first time we hear sooner or later in this film. We're going to hear lots of different versions of it as it's like rehearsed and performed. As it goes on becomes like a a really big um, motif of the film, but yeah, it did win. So Stephen Sondheim wrote it. Madonna performed it at the Oscars. Yes, later, and um, the I'm not crazy with the Oscar performance. It's really campy and like they do lots of weird up tempo parts and just like I I don't think that version is the Oscar worthy version of the song. The the slow romantic ballad. It's absolutely just like so haunting and powerful. I, I'm mm-hmm. really glad that it won the Oscar. But yeah, and it, now do you know about this about uh, about the consequences of no uh, sooner or later winning the Oscar for Best Original Song. So, Francis Ford Coppola's father, Carmine Coppola, was nominated for his score and I think a song he wrote for Godfather Part Three. And the best apparently, of the, tri- the
1: best of the trilogy.
0: Oh no contest. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've never even seen the first two. I've seen the third one over and over. I don't know if it's worth going back to. That's all you need. To one and two. What am I? What am I missing? Um, but uh, no. I've never actually seen, that. <laughs> um, but uh, apparently, Carmine Coppola, Carmine Coppola, was so distraught by having lost the Oscar to Madonna and Steven Sondheim that he died like days later, oh, and it's partially attributed to him losing out on the Oscar. So that's a real shame. But talk about a dead dick. I think. Dick. <laughs> I, think it, I mean, I i don't know how good a song is i don't know if it's good as good as sooner or later it's it's kind of like steven sondheim kind of whacked coppola's father
1: Jeez. pretty brutal it is a great great song i do listen to it all oh, the time so like good. even when i'm not in a madonna mood or a dick tracy mood like i kind of it. it's one of those ones I, I think it is on my perpetual sort of spotify everyday list of songs hmm. and it it is it is played over my favorite Sequence in the movie, which we'll get to later, much much later on. But yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely a fan. Like I'm I, I struggle to think of any songs I don't like in this movie. There's definitely one or two, and we'll get to them. But um, no, sooner or later is a great great song.
0: Yeah, it's one that that grew on me more as an as a kid. It was just kind of like a a slow, very kind of grown-up song to me i didn't really it didn't do that much for me as a kid it's it's one that i appreciate way way more as as i've gotten older like the i really always like the zippier funny like uh fun songs that come up uh later in the film but yeah i mean it's just i don't know it's a masterpiece i'm I'm so glad there's so many things about this film that just like i'm really glad full-blown won oscars you know and we'll always be in the books for that that's about it for the minute
1: let's do our highlights And now, boys and girls, the zip and super-delicious taste of crackly flakes presents the Dick Tracy Minute Highlights. Okay, so what was your
0: favourite thing about Minute 6?
1: My favourite thing about Minute 6, I suppose coming back to it after all these years and really analysing it, is probably just Lips Manless' as oyster man. <laughs> uh, j- just that he has this man on staff, just handing him full plates of food, but he's still only getting the oysters, and then he's handing the plates back. It's something you'd never really notice, like watching the movie just at normal speed, but when you have to sit down and really itemize each of these scenes, it just stands out a little bit more, and it does actually inform a little bit about his character, I think. And and I, j- I, d- I did like the, the horseshoe diamond ring. I've never noticed it before, and I just thought it was fun. And then, sorry, just... Cool. I d- a very very close second is just the sheer staggering beauty of Madonna in the scene.
0: <laughs> um yeah actually i th- i think at one point while the guys taking the oyster tray away lips gets one on there at the last second like there there is one he's taking one from that tray and and lips tosses it on like just barely hitting it as the guy gets it away and it's pretty funny it's a nice little like i wonder if it was only in that take and yeah no it's a, it's a good bit to coordinate and i love the idea of them picturing so, or, or i love picturing them pitching the scene to Sorvino or him reading the script <laughs> and visualizing eating all these oysters and throwing the shells away and getting the new plates. And yeah, it's it's a really nice piece. For my favorite thing, it's it's uh as said earlier, um test there's about as much chance as uh, me taking a desk job as there is of me getting a new girlfriend. Just such a great romantic line and it's it's so disarming because it's it's almost like they're arguing and he just says this incredibly romantic reassuring thing and yeah, it's it's so so good. And and it's I think it's a good way to set the tone right off the bat that Dick Tracy isn't james bond he's not indiana jones Mm. he's not batman he's not like finding a new girl in every film and stuff we we meet dick tracy with him already it's funny he says it like girlfriend even like because he's you know a man that appears to be in at least his early 40s and Um, you know these are grown-ups it's funny that the who appears to be? We do know that the 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 great bad boy playboy Warren Beatty is in fact 52 years old in this film, which is incredible for like for a 1990 52. Mm. That's I think like Wilfred Brimley was probably that age in 19. You know, like Warren's pulling it off. But uh, yeah, again, the fact that he's he's not got a fiance, he's not got a wife, he's got a girlfriend. Uh and you know, and they're a hot young power couple and stuff and uh anyway, it's it's just it's pretty cool that he's so committed right right away. He's like, you know.
1: It is kind of ahead of its time that, you know, that they make this sort of fun adventure movie and that they focus on a somewhat adult relationship, like a like a loving adult relationship. Now, admittedly, infidelity kinda of creeps into the movie a little bit. It kinda of knocks on the door without fully entering the movie. But um, you know, it's it's something you wouldn't really see around this time. As you said, you know, Indiana Jones, James Bond, even the Batman movies, like there was a different love interest in every single movie. Like a, a lot of movies around this time were all about just sort of carefree, wish fulfillment, male fantasy kind of thing. Whereas this one sort of dared to say, well, actually, adult relationships are worth exploring. And, you know, you can still have a fun adventure movie and, mm-hmm. and, and go deep into that. So, you know, it's definitely... We're watching uh, Superman and Lois at the moment, mm. and uh, like that, the, you know watching the show that, that they're not going to just suddenly break up, like that they are a long-standing kind of benchmark, and it's not going to change, and I, I think that's it's <laughs> interesting going back and seeing that in this movie, definitely.
0: Imagine how bizarre it would be if super if every Superman film, he had a different love interest and, like, I mean, I know there was some kind of back and forth between Lois and Lana Lang in the comics and in the Reeve films They, they, they were kind of uh,
1: going down that road though with the later Reeve movies. Like, you had Lana Lang in one movie and then you had Lacey Warfield in the next one. like
0: Yeah, that's true. If they
1: had made a fifth one, you never know, they might have had... They might have had Laurie Lamaris! I was trying to think of a fake new love interest, but then, you know, he had the mermaid girlfriend <laughs> in the comics, but that's a whole different podcast.
0: The 90s were a hell of a time. But yeah, so uh, that'll bring it to a close for this week. Uh, the next minute will involve a lot less singing and a lot more uh, mob brutality. But uh, it'll start with some singing. So yeah, we'll take it from there. We'll be on our way. I'll have a, a plan. This time I'm not only getting, I'm